Hello everyone, my name's Jack Fernan and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Professor Vesna Wallace, who is a professor of South Asian Studies and Indian Buddhism at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Professor Wallace began her interest in Asian Studies and Buddhism by learning of the intricacy and beauty of the Sanskrit language. Her love of languages has led her to translate numerous Buddhist texts, including the Kalachakra Tantra and the Bodhikaya Yavatara. Her research lately, however, has been on Mongolian Buddhism and the unique Buddhist tradition that exists in that country. We started our conversation talking about Professor Wallace's love of language and how, as a young Croatian girl, she came to learn of the Sanskrit language and began a life studying the traditions of the West. We then spoke about how she came to study Mongolian Buddhism in its own right as a living Buddhist tradition with its own texts and practices. As you'll hear, Mongolian Buddhism grew out of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but developed its own teachings in line with its local religious traditions. We had a historical conversation about this development and its struggles through the years of suppression under the Soviet regime and the Chinese Cultural Revolution. We finished by talking about the Buddhist text translated by Professor Wallace, the Bodhikaya Yavatara, which translates to A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life and was originally written by Shantideva in the 8th century. This is viewed as one of the main texts in Tibetan Buddhism, and it explores the way of Buddhahood and the altruistic nature of the Bodhisattva path. And so everyone, thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'll start by asking you, you're um, at University College Santa Barbara. What is your role there? Well, I'm a professor of religious studies, but primarily uh, teaching Indian Buddhism. Uh, Although previously I taught also South Asian studies in general, meaning, you know, other traditions. And uh, I teach... uh, Also, my research, I don't teach much of that, but my research is on Mongolian Buddhism also, and and I teach Sanskrit language. I was uh, looking at at your profile, and it seems that you are fluent in in quite a number of languages, and a number of languages that are a bit more perhaps obscure to to, uh, the Western audience, at least. Yeah, then they are, most of them are not spoken languages. Some are, but most of them are not. So, <laughs> for economic reasons, not very useful, <laughs> but really rewarding for other reasons because sure. they give you access to original texts. And there is a big difference when you read a text in its original language uh, vis-à-vis text in translation. Because you always see other elements there that don't come through in translations. Sometimes because English language uh, has its limitation when it comes to certain uh, doctrinal, uh, philosophical terms and so on that are not indigenous to Western culture. So then people sometimes make up their own terminology and you are not always sure which term they are translating, and uh, <clears throat> uh, because also, like for example, with Sanskrit, it has very kind of profound uh, etymology. So that one word then can mean twenty different meanings, but there is always something that draws you back to this primary 
meanings of the verb and tells you something that uh, unless you know what it's that word coming coming you wouldn't see these different layers of layers of meaning that are hidden that you can't convey in English. You, you have translated a number of, of, of Buddhist texts. Mm-hmm. That must be an extraordinarily difficult task, considering the array of, of various meanings that, it, that each word can, can mean. How do you go about deciding which specific word you're going to, to use for the translation? That's a very good question. And it all depends on context, depends on the tradition, uh, to which particular text belongs, uh, belong, uh, depends on the context in which this term is used. And, um, you know, so for example, you can have the same term appearing in different texts. Uh, usually our graduate students know that when, let's say, we would read a, a text from the Sankhya, a school of Indian philosophy, and then we read something Buddhist, and suddenly uh, this same term means something different in that text, and they feel like, oh, will I ever learn Sanskrit? <laughs> you know? But yeah, it is context, it is tradition, uh, and then sentence context uh, and so on, that helps you decide what should be the, here the most appropriate meaning. You must then uh, have to have a quite an extraordinary understanding of what those traditions are about. Yes, you need to have a, a knowledge of a tradition, an understanding of a tradition, and already having read a number of texts within that tradition uh, to know it. Otherwise, it's, it would be the same even if somebody gives you a text, a very technical text on some, some biochemistry or uh, and, and ask you to translate, let's say, in some other language that you, and you know both languages, but if you're not trained in biochemistry, you may not know all the terms, right? It may, it may be very difficult. Uh, for you to read it, simply because if you're not trained in a science, you may not know that. Or for me to read a legal text uh, may be also challenging even in English, right? Yeah. And and so how did you come to uh, start studying um, Buddhism and and, and particularly um, Indian Tantric Buddhism? Yeah. Well, uh, in the, my undergraduate degree was um, in Indology. That was uh, called in those days. It was a department of Indology at University of Zagreb in Croatia, where I originally am from and where I did my uh, BA. And that was a great program because it introduced me to different uh, Indic traditions, literature, history, you know, it was languages, it was quite comprehensive. And it is only in a graduate school. But for a tantric Buddhism, I primarily turned to during my PhD studies. Before that, I was reading other kind of Indic Buddhist texts, Jaina texts, and Hindu texts. But yeah, it was in a PhD program when I began to search for my dissertation topic. 
And do you have a, a, a personal affiliation with Buddhism? Is it is it something that, that you practice yourself or is it more an intellectual pursuit for you? It's, it's just become both uh, in a sense that, um, you know, you can't study something for very long not to be influenced by it. Uh, that, that worldview doesn't kind of rub off you, right? And uh, so in the course of time, I have found myself to think more like a Buddhist. <laughs> Although uh, I don't know whether every traditional Buddhist would consider me a Buddhist. You know, like some, some traditional Asian uh, Buddhist, but uh, yes, I could say that uh, my interests have become both intellectual and practical. Yes. Because Buddhism is this kind of uh, uh, system of thought and practice where thought and practice are really indivisible. Um, that intellectual understanding of of Buddhism somehow has very much of practical applications. So it kind of turns into everyday life practices. Yeah, one of the uh, first steps on the Buddhist path is, is to gain a, a, a intellectual understanding of, of some of the texts. Um, but it sounds like you've, you've gone beyond that, that initial stage and have... Yeah. Um, it has happened, right? <laughs> I think most of uh, the Buddhist study scholars are in the same situation as I am. You know, some are less open about it. Depends where uh, they teach and uh, uh, how their colleagues would look upon them if they're openly Buddhist. But in uh, Buddhist studies world, Everybody knows who is also a practitioner and who not. And there, you know, especially in the United States, you have uh, very fine scholars and senior professors who are also used to be monks in a Tibetan tradition or in a Zen tradition and Theravada tradition. At some point, you know, they've been even uh, monastics. So. And some are still monastics. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a big mixture. And nowadays, most of graduate students who come to study Buddhism, they already come with some background, not only academic, but also personal background, where they have already studied in some Buddhist centers, have their lamas, and so on. You find that much more common now than when I started many years ago, when everybody used to be in the closet or simply uh, those early 20th century scholars were more interested in an intellectual kind of approach, whether in a particular philosophy of Buddhism or so on, or being simply philologists, you know. You, you've come from Croatia, which to me at least seems like quite a far way away from India and, and perhaps to a lesser extent to Buddhism. Was there something that was always drawing you towards um, that region or, or that tradition? Uh, 
when I was in high school, I there was a there were two books that came out in then we called it Serbo Croatian now Croatian. Uh, one was by a professor of philosophy at University of Zagreb, uh, who wrote a book on systems of Indian philosophy. And I tried to read it because in a high school we had a, a two-year study of philosophy and it was all Western philosophy. So I was interesting, like, oh, what's Eastern philosophy look like? And of course, I didn't understand hardly anything of that that I read. And then came another book, but there was something intriguing there. Um, maybe just desire to understand something I don't understand. And the second was a book which was not that great. Now, as a scholar, when I look back at it, I don't think it's a great book. But still, it was called Zen Buddhism and Psychoanalysis uh, by Eric from D.T. Suzuki. Uh, but I just read the first page and uh, I thought, wow, that's so in interesting how their view is so different. And there was something beautiful about that view too, than our Balkan. <laughs> Balkan view. They look at flowers differently, we would pick them up immediately if we saw them, right? They can just admire it in the place where it is. But there was a, a little footnote there uh, uh, to the word Zen, uh, where it comes from, you know, and the footnote said it comes from Chinese word Chan, which is comes from Sanskrit word Tiana, which means meditation. And I said, wow, what's Sanskrit? So I kept on asking around and nobody knew in, in my hometown where I went to high school. So finally I met one girl and she said, oh, yes, my sister took one year or two years of Sanskrit. It's an ancient language of India where all these ancient uh, philosophical and uh, religious texts were written. I said, that's what I want to study. And I said, are you crazy? This is so impractical. What will you do with that? <laughs> But I was persistent, so they had to give up and let me do it. And uh, since then, I never really regret it. It's been a journey of constant exploration. The body of Sanskrit literature and Indic literature, whether philosophical, religious, secular, um, it's so vast that one lifetime is not enough. So I enjoy because... Uh, by the fact of being a professor, I'm allowed to continue learning and reading new texts and exploring new venues of thought and so on. So it's been very rewarding. But yes, I had no idea will I ever get a job and what will I do with undergraduate degree in Indology. <laughs> I said I should study something practical, you know, like law or medicine. Yeah, you had you had no idea when picking up that book that it would uh, send you right. send you down the path of where you've ended up. Yeah, I use sometimes I joke with some of my colleagues. I say, "Be careful what you write in footnote <laughs> because <laughs> I change somebody's life. <laughs> it changes definitely mine." <laughs> 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 of course, I never thought it would be. So yeah, it's interesting that the language. Um, was the really capturing part for you that led you into um, the culture and then into, into the religion. And it was one word, 
was really just one word, and I said, such a beautiful word, it sounds so nice. And the meaning was nice, although, you know, that was the socialist time uh, when I was in high school, so uh, things were different. Uh, nobody really studied religion or was interested in religion. We were considering conservative and backward, if you show any interest. And I can't say the time I was really interested in Indian religion. I was just interested in general to understand this different worldview that seemed to me so different than the worldview in which I was growing up, you know, especially in the socialist time. And, you know, when you're in Europe, everything is close by, so other cultures are not so foreign. Uh, they are kind of familiar in some way. So whereas, whereas this looked uh, intriguing, really, and at the same time, even though I couldn't understand uh, a young high school kid what all those things meant when I read, I felt that there is some depth there uh, that I just need to... <laughs> study more in order to understand it. You mentioned that you've you've studied Mongolian Buddhism. Um, yeah, this, this I started both Mongolian language and Mongolian Buddhism in my PhD, during my PhD studies. I wanted to expand, because when you work with Indian Buddhism, you work with texts and you work with imagined communities, because there are no living Indian Buddhist community. You have Tibetan Buddhists in India, but Tibetan Buddhism, even though grounded on Indian Buddhism, uh, it has expanded in different uh, uh, traditions and schools and and so on. And so when I was, when I'm reading in the text, I'm trying to imagine only who is the audience to these texts, right? Even apart from uh, what they call the treatises who are written by certain figures who live in a certain centuries, we know at least that they wrote, but you have the whole canonical body of literature, which is all kind of attributed to the Buddha Shakyamuni. And uh, we don't, you know, Buddha never wrote anything. Everything was transmitted orally for centuries. So who wrote those texts when they were written? Some of them are mutually contradictory. Then you, then you think, okay, uh, we don't know anything about these texts apart from the content. So then I was becoming a little bit envious of my colleagues who were studying Buddhism in Japan or Tibetan Buddhism, Korean, Sri Lanka, or wherever, where you have living tradition. And people who are still reading and studying certain texts and, and practicing which, which, what is in those texts. And uh, I kind of said I need to also um, do something where I have a living tradition. And Mongolian Buddhism, Buddhist tradition was kind of ignored in academic studies. There, there have been Mongolists, of course, but they seem to be more um, concentrated on uh, Early can either feel on linguistics, Mongolian linguistics, or history, pretty much like Genghis Khan and empire, and so on, but not really examining uh, 
Buddhist texts and Buddhist tradition. <clears throat> and so and there was this misconception among scholars that, oh, it's the same as Tibetan Buddhism, because um, uh, in a second wave of exposure of Mongols to Buddhism, it came from Tibet, and there had been a heavy influence. But so many texts uh, that have been written by Mongolian authors are Mongolian texts. They are not, even though many of them wrote in a Tibetan language, because the Tibetan language was a language of communications with Tibetans, and this was a, you know, like a Latin of Europe that was a literary language, and and they have many of them had monastic names which were Tibetan names, so people really didn't know that these are Mongols all the time. They thought that they were simply Tibetans. So when I, as as a student, said, well, I want to really look into Mongolian Buddhism. And this was also the time when Mongolia gained its independence from Soviet Union, when religious freedom, you know, came about with democratization of a country. I So that's a great opportunity to also follow what will happen with the revival of Buddhism in Mongolia, in what shape it's coming back. And so... Uh, it's been a very interesting uh, uh, journey. But when I was a student and I told to some scholars, no, I really want to also expand to Mongolia. Oh, one scholar said to me, but why? Mongolians never wrote anything. Or some, somebody else said, but it's same as Buddhism. What? There's nothing special. Yeah, philosophy is similar to uh, to Buddhism, of course. But then also it's similar to Indian, uh, Mahayana, Tantrayana as well. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's an Indian Buddhism, or sorry, that it is Tibetan Buddhism. Just like nobody would, we don't call Buddhism in China Indian Buddhism, right? And we don't call uh, Buddhism in uh, Korea or Japan or Tibet Indian Buddhism, because cultural elements, um, uh, uh, old traditional practices, all of this has made into the tradition and gave it a, its own unique shape. As one Mongolian uh, scholar said, that Buddhism, and one could say it for any religion, is uh, like a river that adjusts itself to the shape of its banks, of its shores, right? Uh, I mean, if you look at Catholicism, in Mexico or in Brazil, and you will find uh, indigenous elements in that <laughs> Catholicism, right? <laughs> Sacrifice of chickens and all of that stuff. Uh, so it has its own uh, shape. And it is really Mongolian. And it should not be called Tibetan Buddhism or Indian Buddhism and so on. So. It's been, so it's been interesting, and I through this I have discovered uh, how important it is to have a living tradition, because then you can see how certain ritual texts and practices actually are done, how certain how 
was before was for me just a certain literary body or you know a text actually for certain communities that is a deity that is a living deity that is its own biography its own life its own uh, exerts its own agency that is outside of text so that was very interesting to uh, to find and i ch- so these are the reasons I chose Mongolian Buddhism because there are many Tibetologists, many Sinologists uh, already who are, uh, or Southeast Asianists who are looking in Buddhism in Southeast Asia. But th- that was an area that was ignored and it almost kind of wonder, made me wonder, you know, how the sons and daughters of Genghis Khan <laughs> became tamed by Buddhism and were they really tamed, <laughs> you know, and how how they uh, take this tradition and what they do with it, how they interpret it and so on. So it's been a wonderful journey to also observe uh, development of Buddhism in Mongolia since its uh, destruction and interruption for 70 years during that communist and socialist periods. It's interesting that Tibetan Buddhism uh, has a lot to be thankful to the Mongols for because it's my understanding that after the Mongols invaded uh, most of most of Asia, the, the empire that they created really helped Tibetan Buddhism to spread throughout <clears throat> the region. But... It sounds like from what you're saying that in each region that the Tibetan Buddhism spread to, it developed its own unique teachings that were adapted to to the culture and the traditions that existed there. Exactly. You can, you can see in Tibetan Buddhism in the indigenous elements uh, and so on that we don't, that were not originally Indic. Uh, but at the same time, is preser- uh, preserving Indic, Indic tradition. Yeah, well, uh, definitely Mongol invasion supported. At first, you know, they destroyed certain monasteries and temples, but then they rebuilt them at the same time, you know. Then they rebuilt them and supported monasteries uh, by introducing um, uh, kind of uh, exception from taxes, uh, and that that was already an idea that Chinggis Khan had, very kind of advanced idea that uh, civil workers, namely those who were helping society, monks of any religion, uh, teachers and uh, uh, doctors, that they, these professions should be exempt from taxes because they are helping society. One of the things that was unique about Mongolian religion before it started to merge with Tibetan Buddhism was uh, its shamanic nature. There was, there was um, sh- shamans were quite prominent throughout the community and even Genghis Khan had a real connection with sort of the natural world and he used to pray to the, the sun god Tengri and there was, there was that real real reliance on the the deities being present in in the natural world 
has that sort of element been incorporated into the Buddhism that is now that um, Mongolia began to develop? Yeah, uh, to some degree, it was always you know since Buddhism uh, came to Mongolia that certain of these um, uh, practices and views were incorporated, and they said you know it's, it's interesting because um, what we know about. Uh, religion of Chinggis Khan is that he worshipped Tengri, this heaven, the sky, uh, that is all-encompassing, right? That's why um, he said that when uh, when Chinggis went and conquered other, other cultures, he didn't. He wasn't after destruction of mosques and churches, uh, even though he couldn't understand how, why would they think that they can put this vast heaven, the sky, into a small building, you know, kind of limit it in a little building. Uh, but yes, there were, already at the time, there were different kind of classes of shamans at the time of Genghis uh, Khan. And yeah, natural world was uh, worshipped in the sense of that there, were de- there are these deities that own that inhabit this world and own this natural world. So it's not really, doesn't belong to, to you. So you have to ask their permission if you are going to do something with a piece of land or a mountain that belongs to them. And everything, if, if it is believed that a certain mountain belongs to a deity, then everything that's on these mountains, from trees and rocks and medicinal herbs, to animals who live there belongs to the deity of the mountain. So when a, uh, when Buddhism came, uh, one thing that um, Mongol Hans, as they were converted to Buddhism, didn't allow any more for uh, uh, animal or human sacrifices that uh, still were practiced by shamanism because that was going against any Buddhist uh, view. Uh, but doesn't mean that some that other things were not incorporated. So basically, all mountain deities were then kind of converted to Buddhism. So all the sacred shamanic mountains became the sacred Buddhist sites, and the same uh, kind of form of respect and veneration to the mountains um, for the sacred mountains remain to this very day. Uh, that you don't go and cut the trees on a sacred mountain or, and so on. Mm-hmm. So yes, number of practices have uh, entered, uh, became incorporated into Buddhism, kind of Buddhanized. Uh, but at the same time, also Buddhism has influenced shamanism. So therefore, you can speak about uh, what they call black shamanism, black in a sense, mm, original to the old forms of shamanism, and then something that's called yellow shamanism, shamanism that has been significantly influenced by Buddhism. Uh, so influence went, you can say, in both ways. So there's still aspects in Mongolia today of um, the sh- shamanistic practices. Yes, yes. Right, right. So it was, uh, it's, it's a, I mean, all of these traditions very quickly started coming back. And 
And there was a point when uh, it was a little bit competition. There was com- they were competitive, particularly from a shamanic side, that there were a strong animosity almost to Buddhism among some shamans and their followers emerged uh, who claimed that Buddhism is not indigenous religion. Uh, it's kind of borrowed religion. And uh, whereas shamanism is, and there were shamans who claimed that um, all the ailments of society uh, are because no one because people are not following shamanism, but are turning towards Buddhism. And there were some uh, serious problems emerged, uh, but lately has been quite quiet because some shamans have been accused of ritual murder of some people. And, and some of them were very aggressive, were scaring people away, telling them, oh, if you don't uh, convert to shamanism, we will throw a curse on you, and so on. And then people didn't want to have anything with them. Then they were going to Buddhism, towards Buddhism. But there was also, com- there has been, not so much anymore, competition with uh, Christianity, uh, because uh, as soon as this freedom of religious expression came about and Mongolia opened its doors, it's no longer locked close country, you had these rivers of uh, streams of different kind of uh, Christian groups uh, coming and uh, proselytizing. And while some were respectful of indigenous religions, others were very aggressive too. Uh, And then all kinds of other sects and groups that nobody knew anything who they who actually they are, they were not like recognized churches. Um, so yeah, there were lots of problems because they would criticize Buddhism, shamans would criticize Buddhism, and the missionaries used the slogan, we give Buddhism takes. Uh, it's kind of same slogan the communists used to use it in early revolutionary period. So, uh, and people were early on, in large numbers, actually, especially within uh, 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 urban area, uh, converting to different religious groups, Christian groups, because uh, uh, some groups like Mormons were, uh, were providing scholarships for young students to study abroad if they if they convert and stay within the church for a year. Uh, or provide them with visas for six months to come to America or Europe. And also uh, some of these uh, churches were offering um, uh, free English language classes at a time when uh, when young people couldn't get such classes anywhere else, uh, not for free. And also... In these early days, uh, in the early 2000s, when I started to come uh, to Mongolia, <clears throat> uh, Christianity was seen as a religion of the prosperous. Well, since then, things have changed. As soon as economy got better and changing, people 
were coming back to their roots, or most commonly Buddhist roots. Because Buddhism was primarily practiced in a remote uh, country area, not in the towns and cities. So, uh, so nowadays, uh, there aren't that many. I mean, churches are there, but now they are run by Mongols, which is different. Um, so some of these Mongolian pastors, you know, they give on a Sunday sermon and then they come to main monastery in the city and request prayers for themselves from lamas, you know. Because Mongolians have always had that very kind of practical approach to religion. Anything that pow- seems powerful, anything that seems work, why not? Kind of, you know. <laughs> and that maybe comes from this nomadic pastoral lifestyle and mentality. Even people who are born in a city and raised in a city, they still have that nomadic mentality. And uh, right, so there is a, since you mentioned your background is Catholic, there is a Catholic church, which in around 2000, when I first came, came, I was told it had like only seven members. Now it has over 100. And um, sermons are given in both languages, in English and Mongolian, by a pastor from Ghana. Yeah, but you can find still there are two couple of two of at least Mormon churches in a city and then maybe some in a smaller towns. But uh, the number of Mormon missionary has shrunk to a large number uh, because government uh, kind of stopped, uh, made a certain kind of regulations that no one who has a legitimate business in the country could stay longer than three months or so. Uh, so many of these missionaries, uh, specifically Korean missionaries, they were very, very aggressive uh, in their proselytizing where they would, you couldn't walk on the street without being almost harassed by them. Uh, they have also kind of disappeared. Uh, I mean, those churches are there, but they are now Mongolian pastors with Mongolian uh, followers. But as I say, it's kind of syncretistic oftentimes. The Mongolians tend to have more than one religious identity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds like it's quite a, um, a competitive place, which is different to the experience of, of Mongolians with religion in, in that revolutionary period and, and before. It right. was... In the 1920s, I believe, when when the USSR came into Mongolia and then um, the Chinese took it back and and had the the revolution there. Can you just talk us through a little bit what happened to religion in Mongolia throughout that period? So when I'm talking about Mongolia, I'm referring to Democratic Republic of Mongolia. I'm not referring to Inner Mongolia, which is still annexed to China and under Chinese uh, government. So what happened is that, you know, following a revol- uh, revolution in Russia, uh, the young men who studied in Moscow and other places, Mongolians, right, uh, became introduced uh, to uh, revolutionary ideas. 
and they came back to Mongolia and brought these ideas with them. And in my limited understanding, uh, the idea wasn't to go and now destroy the religion. Uh, right. I mean, after all, they had uncles and uh, grandfathers and uh, uh, relatives in the monasteries. They're not going to kill them. What, what they were after is to, econom to re remove, reduce uh, economic uh, status of monasteries. Monasteries were quite wealthy, but wealthy in the sense of animals, you know, that was the wealth. Of course, they had the golden statues, which everybody went and worshipped. But a large uh, number of population was um, Buddhist, and large male population was in monasteries. Um, so, but also maybe I need to go a little bit uh, earlier, and that is the Mongols were under Manchu Qing rule, uh, for almost about 200 years. And when the Qing dynasty collapsed, then Mongolia became a, a kind of autonomous monarchy, which was ruled by Jethro Damba, uh, who, who was considered to be the eighth incarnation of uh, Zanabazar, Andalbegan Zanabazar, who was the first uh, kind of head lama of uh, Mongolia, just like Dalai Lama to Tibetans. But he was Tibetan, he wasn't Mongolian, because uh, the Manchus made sure that uh, when they came, when they colonized Mongolia, that they had uh, not uh, Mongols, uh, or because the Mongols would be loyal to, uh, to the head of their Buddhism, and who could have influence in uh, rebellion against Manchus. So they kept on bringing, Tibet, uh, starting discovering like Tibetan incarnations, right, in Tibet and bringing them. And so he was there and uh, uh, he had own serfs and nobility, no, lamas, high-ranking lamas who are coming from nobility. They, they own also large Cats of livestock. It, it, it is said that, uh, according to some of communist archives, and that uh, in those days there were monasteries own over three million livestock. So then, uh, what uh, these young uh, revolutionaries wanted to see is that some of this livestock is distributed to people. And uh, from the Mongolian People's Revolutionary Party, there were those who then monitoring uh, kind of uh, accounting of monasteries. And then slowly um, they try to reduce also number of monks. So instead of somebody who has three sons sends all three sons to monastery, they said only the youngest one of the, if there are already three sons in the family, then, like, the youngest can go and become a monk. But, uh, you know, and it has to be above the age of 18. Uh, so, but then lamas and parents still found the ways, you know, to bring younger kids and the revolution will go to monastery, taking them out and bringing them back home. 
so it started slow, slowly. So the destruction of monastic institutions, uh, buildings, uh, executions of monks, uh, lamas, um, uh, uh, imprisonments of lamas, that started when Mon basically when Mongolia joined Comintern and when Stalin had inf now influence over Mongolia, and this is then under this uh, impatient, strong, iron hand of uh, Stalin. He said, okay, enough. The, the, the Islamists are still around. You know, monasteries are still around. So the first, like in 1938, it began when uh, all the monasteries were destroyed, many lamas, especially the king lamas, who were coming from nobility. Then they were executed, imprisoned, low-ranking lamas uh, were put into um, cooperatives, they were called cooperatives of low-ranking lamas, poor lamas, uh, who then now began to work you know, uh, for the government, building bridges, factories, or whatever work they were doing, building roads, and so on. And then, uh, of course, any kind of expression, public expression of of religious thought or practice was prohibited. Uh, and many lamas who survived disrobed, married, moved to countryside. Uh, but so as an institutional religion, uh, Buddhism was kind of destroyed. In, um, when was it, in 1940? Around the Second World War Two, now I can't exactly as I had remembered the year, but uh, uh, Stalin has a general by name Rokosovsky, uh, who had many Mongolian soldiers who fought to get along with Russians in the Second World War Two, and they were very good fighters and soldiers. Uh, so when they asked him uh, to approach Stalin and ask Stalin to open a temple, one temple in a, in a city, in Ulaanbaatar, which survived uh, to open again as a temple. Then Rokosovsky asked Stalin, and because he liked Rokosovsky, he proved it. And then few old lamas were placed there, but they were under strict control. They were hardly not serious activity there as well. Maybe some old grandma would go, go in there, but nobody else. Um, and they eventually, the Islamists established like a journal, uh, or kind of, uh, kind of like a Buddhist journal, but uh, it was, everything was written from a communist perspective. That's the only way that, how they could publish them right. But many people knew who used to be old Lama, right? So, if somebody died in a family or they wanted somebody sick or they wanted some ritual to be done, they would bring them late at night, one o'clock at night, at ten o'clock at night to their apartment, right, or the yurt, and then they would do ritual for them. In the countryside, lots of people um, still continue their faith. But they would bury and hide their texts that they venerated and statues in wooden trunks. And then at night, 
they would take them out and worship and then they would hide them uh, again. And so younger generation learned from grand grandparents, you know, grandparents were installing in them some faith and taught them some Buddhism and Buddhist practices. And some friends told me that they remember that how their parents and relatives and neighbors would gather gather and they would talk about Buddhism, but they would place like cards on the table, right? And so kids would play outside. And then if kids see that somebody is coming, some stranger, could be somebody from Ghana, then they would run and say, oh, people are coming. Then they would all pick up these cards and pretend that they're just socializing, playing cards, you know, and drinking mayor's milk or whatever. And then <laughs> they would continue. So, so in many people's minds and hearts, you know, it kind of survived. People, you know, grandparents left, little kids were learning uh, uh, still something about Buddhism and so on. Of course, this was not the uh, same way like studying at university or in a monastery. Nevertheless, they were learning basic ethics and they were learning certain practices and so on. And so, um, so it didn't take a long time for Buddhism to come back. As one lama uh, said, uh, they could control our bodies and they could control our speech, but they could not control our minds, right? So <clears throat> where biggest challenge was is that um, there were no law, that all those old lamas who were educated uh, in monasteries before the revolutionary period have died off of old age and so on those who survived and still were very knowledgeable. So no knowledgeable people left, apart from those who learned from grandmas and grandpas, you know, some basic Buddhist principles. And pray, mainly prayers, you know, and how to make offerings. And so to establish monastery and to get monks, you need to provide an education. And so here again, then... Uh, it depended on Tibetans. So then many young men uh, were sent to India to study in Tibetan monasteries and then come back. Because some of the earliest monks that I met there, they used to be postmen, a teacher, uh, clerks, you know, uh, who had these grandparents as lamas or so on and learned from them and felt that they need to do something and they kind of became lamas, but they didn't know much. And they were married and had children, and they lived this family. Uh, so, and then also there were these young people who were kind of born during communist time, raised in a communist time, um, and who been indoctrinated in another way by being told that this is feudalistic religion, and then lamas were corrupt, and you know, and so on. And so there was this also among 
some people uh, is suspicion of religion, right? And they were not trusting these uh, new lamas, and they were not trusting religion in general, especially not Buddhism or shamanism. And you know, they were like more interested, especially these young people. They were more interested in the religion of the prosperous Westerners because they thought that something different, you know, and uh, new opportunities rise to go to abroad because it was impossible in those days for anybody to get visas to Europe or America from Mongolia. Uh, so that's why some missionaries were very frustrated by these new converts because they realized that uh, they were coming for opportunities, not for some <laughs> serious commitment to uh, to religion. And uh, well, since then, you know, uh, many monasteries have rebuilt, um, but most of these monasteries are really temples, uh, and some monasteries uh, in which mainly living quarters are for children who come from a countryside and study there. So these are not still monastery in the sense like what you see when you go to Tibet or China or in India, Tibetan monasteries where everybody lives in monastery, nobody is married, and, right? Here it's, it's a different, uh, uh, different situation. It's, it's amazing how it's able to survive uh, at least in a sort of underground fashion through through such oppressive uh, practices, just yeah, through through the transmission from from grandparents to grandchildren and exactly uh, that you can't you can't as as Lama said, you, governments can control people's speech and bodies, but they can't control what's inside your mind. <laughs> and it's, uh, uh, a friend of mine was telling me a funny story how during that communist period, these young uh, revolutionaries were dispatched to different parts of the countryside to convince people that ghosts don't exist. Those people were still like uh, making offerings to different spirits and ghosts, you know. And uh, so, but they were very unsuccessful. So when they went after a few years later, when they came back and they found out people still believe in spirits and ghosts, <laughs> then they told them, okay, they still exist, but now in less numbers. <laughs> Just dwindling numbers, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that comes back to something that you were talking about earlier with the context and the tradition of an area being so important to the the religions that are able to, to flourish in those sorts of areas. When Buddhism came into Mongolia, it found fertile soil in which to find adherence. Exactly. It's uh, every, with every religion, it, it, it cannot survive. Like Indian Buddhism in China would absolutely not survive if it did, didn't adopt itself uh, to uh, certain Chinese worldviews and uh, practices, worship, ancestor worship, and you know, and so on, it just wouldn't found footing in that cultural yeah. soil. 
which which is an interesting concept that a lot of religions try and position themselves as being universal and, and, and for the good of, of humanity in general. But also there are these very localised aspects to exactly. all the religions that are sort of at odds with one another but are almost necessary to ensure that the individual feels that um, what they are believing in is is in line with their their traditions and, and customs. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Vesna, I wanted to ask you uh, about one of the works that you've translated, the um, the Bodhikaryavatara, I think uh-huh. I'm pronouncing that Bodhikaryavatara, yes. Which, from my understanding, is one of the, the seminal works in Tibetan Buddhism. Would you mind providing, I suppose it'll be a, it'll be a brief outline of, of what that work is about and what is it calling people to do or to practice or to believe? I, I think what's uh, maybe so attractive about this text to so many Tibetan teachers, Lama, widely, uh, widely teach it, Mm. Because it provides, a, it's, it's a really, as it says, guide to the way of being a bodhisattva in this world. Bodhisattva meaning a person who has dedi- who dedicates oneself to the practice of Buddhism, not for his or her own sake of liberation, but also to lead others to liberation. Someone who is old... Uh, lifestyle and all of ways of thinking and all of motivation is based on that. And text is written in words uh, which is filled with this enthusiasm and passion of uh, of that lifestyle and that kind of commitment. Uh, not just one life commitment but innumerable lifetimes commitments to develop this altruistic motivation uh, to sacrifice oneself uh, anywhere at any time for the benefit of other beings, being always driven by compassion for all sentient beings, disregarding whether they're good or bad, right? But also, so this is really kind of heart of Shantideva speaking uh, with this strong passion. And uh, but the way how he sets it up, sets uh, uh, this up is um, basically giving a practical guidance uh, how to achieve uh, practical guidance towards the achievement of these perfections uh, that Bodhisattva is starving, uh, striving for uh, from patience. To, to, to Viriam, uh, in Sanskrit it's Viriam. Some translate, I think my husband and I translate it as enthusiasm, but it's, me, it's really more like um, courage, you know, because they say to be bodhisattva, you have to be brave, uh, to be willing, you know, to give your body, life, everything for the sake of others. Uh, without regret, but out of this pure love and compassion. Uh, but also, um, th- there is a chapter there on wisdom, how to cultivate wisdom, which is the basis of compassion. 
So uh, it, it kind of gives this practical, very good practical guidance also uh, within one's, somebody who aspires to become a bodhisattva. I was just uh, speaking with a, one monk from uh, Mongolia because he's writing a book and he says somebody asking to uh, to write a chapter on anger, dealing with anger. I said, okay, tell him go to to this chapter on patience of Shantideva. You'll find very good examples there if you can use and cite uh, because uh, he, uh, he leads you through analysis. Right? Like if you're get, getting angry at person, whatever, at what you are really angry, and he gives you an example. Like, if somebody hits you by a stick, are you angry at a stick? No. Are you angry at a hand that was wielding that stick? No. Uh, are you angry because uh, they're not whom you are angry? You could say, well, I'm angry at a person uh, or at the mind of a person, right? Intention of a person who was uh, wielding that stick. But then Shantideva says, but that, the mind of that person who was wielding a stick, a stick is also subject to mental afflictions. So this is a this is culprit, right? So if you want, really want to be angry, be angry at a mental affliction. But mental affliction of that person and mental affliction of your person, that's if it's an anger or hatred, is the same. <laughs> Yeah. So you want to be angry, some be angry, be angry at uh, mental afflictions, like anger itself, right? <laughs> or he says, well, if you get angry, be like a piece of wood, don't move, don't say anything, don't do anything, because whatever comes out of this mental affliction will be negative, and you will reap negative karma and negative regret, and results and you will regret. So just be like a piece of wood. So he has many of like like this very um, practical guidance, and he speaks in such a inspiring and beautiful words that it this is what I think inspires so many to to read it and teach it. You you mentioned that there's a, a real passion to what he writes. In, in certain passages, he talks about waging a war on on the mental afflictions that exactly. uh, that, that come into your mind, and that you'd rather cut off your head than give in to the mental afflictions that that, <laughs> yeah, are, yeah. that are trying to invade. There's there's a real there's a, there's a re- yeah a real passion to to staying on that um, bodhisattva path, which which really gives the whole the whole piece. Uh, a sense of urgency, but also a, a sense of great importance. That this this truly is the um, the the one goal that we should all be seeking to attain. Exactly. So he's following the model that's already laid out in some much earlier sutra, uh, Mahayana text, Mahayana sutras of um, uh, eight or ten perfections. Um, uh, six or sorry, six or ten perfections, and here he lays each of these. Perf- each chapter deals with one of these perfections, a like perfection of meditation, for, you know, ending with perfection of wisdom, uh, you know, like, um, 
perfection of enthusiasm, perfection of patience, and so on. But he doesn't talk to them in in that kind of scholastic way. He he puts it in this uh, versified uh, lyric, uh, very personal way. You know, begin, starting with his confession of his misdeeds and ending with a prayer uh, for the benefit of all sentient beings. And then within that, he couches this this path. You also mentioned the altruistic nature of the Bodhisattva way of life. But one of the main, uh, or one of the prominent criticisms that is leveled against Buddhism is that it's quite a selfish and self-centered religion because, so the criticism goes, someone is only trying to achieve uh, Buddhahood or enlightenment for their own sake and for their own self, and they're not trying to to assist anyone else in in that path. Can you explain to me why, according to to Santi Deva, that that's wrong? That that critique holds no water. Well, it's good that you ask, raise this question because even within Buddhist tradition in India it, itself, this was criticized. <laughs> That this path, uh, that there is nothing wrong about this path, but the proponents of Mahayana, right, and then have uh, later claimed, well, if you follow this path where you are seeking liberation for your own sake only, you will never reach the perfect Buddhahood, the kind of Buddhahood that Buddha Shakyamuni reached. The reason he reached it is because here he came down from the Tushita heaven, uh, took on a human form, and uh, taught the Dharma to liberate all such beings. Right. Um, so, so this is where Mahayana sets itself against uh, earlier forms of Buddhism. So saying that that goal of arhatship is limited, the goal of seeking liberation for oneself is limited in that sense that by not developing this altruistic motivation, you won't go too far. You won't reach this bigger goal, that full and perfect awakening or enlightenment. But uh, to say that somehow then uh, let's say Theravada Buddhism, which follows more goal of arhatship or so on, is somehow selfish, would be unfair, because you go to Sri Lanka or you go to Thailand and anywhere and you'll see still monastic being engaged with society and teaching people and doing serving communities, rituals and so on. Uh, so it's not like they cloistered in a monastery and nobody ever sees them. Uh, right? Even the forest monks uh, adopting tigers and taking care of them or uh, <laughs> protecting forests by ordaining them as monks so that people wouldn't cut out trees, right? They're in kind of active environmentalists. So to say that somehow they're selfish would be really unfair. Yeah, you've obviously spent a bit of time in both Mongolia and and India. What what's been your sort of perception of how those that are really practicing Buddhism go about 
interacting with with the community? It's hard to speak about in general, in very kind of general terms, because, you know, just because let's say people are living in monastery and wear robes doesn't mean every, everybody is great and holy. <laughs> but you can see that Buddhism is changing, that become more uh, active socially than it was, let's say, 20 years ago or, let's say, 40 years ago, right? Everywhere else, it's be, it's kind of uh, becoming more, not just socially aware, but really sees importance of social engagement, that you serve also community, you can serve communities in different ways, not just offering dharma. And some, some, some have openly said, uh, I heard them say different conferences and so on, oh, we have to learn from Christians because they have developed a good system, right, of uh, uh, being, engaging with others, with the community at large and uh, doing humanitarian work and so on. Yeah, that's interesting because then you hear from... Uh from uh, Christians that they need to learn a thing or two from the Eastern traditions about relying on meditation. Yeah, yeah. yeah so even Dalai Lama himself has uh, pointed that out, you know. Yeah. And there have been some interesting uh, dialogues between Buddhist, uh, Buddhism and Christianity. Yeah, yeah, well, let's hope they continue. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a good place to finish. So, Professor Wallace, thank you um, very much for joining me for the podcast. It's been for me a fascinating interview, and I, I hope our listeners enjoy it. Well, thank you, and uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. And, and I wish you success in this new endeavor of developing uh, how you call it religious studies podcast. Yeah. So, yes. Something like that. That's, that. that sounds nice. We'll go with that. <laughs> Great. Great. Yeah. yeah. And uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us.